I think that righteous anger is uh, not an out-of-control kind of an anger, because I think I express anger, but I don't think anybody would say I'm out-of-control. When I used to call Trump a a grifter, a liar, a misogynist, (laughs) I was very serious when I said those things. (laughs) We refer to it uh, here on Unladylike as productive rage. (laughs) Yes. I think that's a really good way to describe it. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline, and today we're harnessing our productive rage with Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii. In 2012, Hirono became Hawaii's first female senator and the first Asian-American woman ever elected to the Senate. She's the only immigrant currently serving in the Senate, and she just came out with a new memoir called Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Caroline, the senator is also the highest ranking government official we have had on Unladylike. (laughs) I mean, do we need a security detail now? (laughs) I think that's how that works. Yeah. During her 50-year career in politics, Hirono has made a name for herself championing issues like public health care, workers' rights, and immigration. She also emerged as a fierce opponent of the Trump administration. Take, for instance, Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation hearings in 2018. When asked about whether Christine Blasey Ford should be allowed to testify, here's what the senator told ABC News. We're not consulted at all. I would like to have us come together and figure out what is the best way to proceed. Not this seat-of-the-pants stuff and the latest being a letter from the chairman to the Democrats saying, we have done everything we can to contact her. That is such bull****. I can't hardly stand it. The senator's communications director said, um, you just said bullshit on TV. He said, no, I said BS. He said, no, you didn't. And I said, <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> These are not scripted moments for me, by the way. I mean, before I go on camera, I, I certainly, because I, I'm a Democrat, which means that I have to be very prepared, right? <laughs> and we're very analytical that way. You have to have our facts straight and all that. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to get up on and not say, this is such bullshit, I can't stand it. So I realized that it was, uh, it was something that people welcomed, somebody who would get up and say those things in, in a very straightforward, what I would call a very, very plain way. During the pre-COVID times and I would be traveling, I'd be in New York or, or wherever I am, people would come up to me and thank me for how I uh, speak about the things that they cared about in ways that they thought about. And I realized how it was important for me to speak out, and especially for people whose voices are not not heard in the halls of Congress. Speaking out has gotten folks listening and talking. Esquire magazine has hailed her as a legitimate badass of the Senate. The Daily Dot tallied up 11 times Maisie Hirono had zero fucks to give, And The Cut published a running list of every time Senator Maisie Hirono called BS. She's also been calling BS on anti-Asian racism and violence. Her COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act just passed the Senate with only one opposing vote. 
She and Senator Tammy Duckworth also successfully lobbied the Biden White House to increase AAPI representation in the administration. And that barely scratches the surface of all that Senator Hirono has accomplished and how she became a political force to be reckoned with. A quick note that our audio quality is a little less crystal clear than usual in some moments of today's interview. Our mics picked up a bit of a hum in Senator Hirono's office. Let's just call it the buzz of democracy at work. At 73 years old, Senator Hirono has spent the vast majority of her life in public office. She served in the Hawaii State House, went on to be the lieutenant governor of Hawaii. Then, after three terms as a U.S. representative, Hirono won her historic seat in the U.S. Senate. She chalks up her success to her mother and the dogged determination she role modeled. When Maisie was eight years old, her mother fled from Japan to Hawaii with Maisie and her brother to escape their abusive father. Well, in your memoir, you write, My deep emotional connection to my mother is the current that has driven my entire life. Everything I have achieved is a testament to her fortitude. How so? She had so much courage. And I... I have said publicly as well as to her mom, I, there's nothing I can do that matches what you did and the courage it took for her to escape from my, my father, abusive marriage, and to bring three children. That just doesn't happen in Japan. <laughs> and so it took tremendous courage, and, and she had to do it all. Um, she had to plot to do it. Uh, my father never found out we had left the country, by the way. That is how negligent he was until many years later. When he happened to ask, oh, where's my family? Because my mother had been with my grandparents who raised me, my maternal grandparents who raised me in Japan from the time I was three to the time I came here. So tremendous courage. And we come to this country, we have nothing. We didn't know anything about social safety net or anything. My mother just worked hard. We had very little material things. But what I saw was just tremendous determination. That is the heart of fire. Tremendous determination, and she never whined, and she never complained. She just went about doing what she needed to do to uh, support us. How can I not be affected by a woman like that? And she stood up for herself, and the really wonderful thing is that she never imposed what I would call sort of stereotypical uh, expectations of me. Not once did she ever say to me, when are you going to get married and when are you going to have children? Not once. <laughs> Can you imagine? No. <laughs> At a time when, when women my age, we were all supposed to get married and have children and whatever. And my mother totally changed my life by bringing me to this country. So she is my, uh, she is my guide. And now that she's gone, and I think of all the, the quiet strength that she had, but she would stand up for herself. She would vocalize. And so uh, I, I, uh, I am her daughter. Well, okay. So th- since this is unladylike, we have mm-hmm. to ask you about the feminine mystique. Oh, yes. <laughs> so th- this, of course, is a classic in the feminist canon. And yes. in your book, you really emphasize its importance in your life. So How did you come to read it, and what effect did it have on you? I read it in college. 
Literally a light bulb went on my head because up to that point, in spite of the fact that I was raised in what I would call a non-traditional household with a very, very brave, unusual mother, I still was not immune from the, the what I would call the dominant culture's expectations. So until I read that book, I thought, well, I'll get my bachelor's degree. I'll get married. I'll have children. I read that book. A light bulb went on. I thought, what the heck am I thinking? <laughs> and so at that point, I decided, why should I expect some guy to take care of me? How did the realization feel at the time, that light bulb moment? And how did it, how did it eventually factor into your political ambitions? That light bulb that went on my head, I decided that um, I, I, was, I wasn't going to take the path of getting married, et cetera. In fact, for a long time, getting married and having children uh, were not my uh, top priorities. And then as I got more involved in, in politics, uh, that's where I wanted to make a difference. And of course, by the time I was elected to office, uh, I was in my early 30s. So I just wanted to do a good job there. And I knew that if I had taken another path, maybe I wouldn't be doing um, all of that. And it was really important to me to give back in that way. But one of the funny things is that I, at 40, I announced to my staff, I think I'll get married now. And we all had a really big <laughs> laugh about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because <laughs> I will say that was one of my favorite lines because I was like, yes, of course at 40, like you've, you've lived a full life, you know what you want by this point like I thought maybe I could uh, handle you know getting married maybe I could pay a little attention to that although I I knew that I could not marry any person who was uh, not supportive understanding and did not importantly compete with me because mm-hmm. I had had that already <laughs> right yeah you need someone who yeah not only doesn't compete with you but but understands sort of the yes. rigors of the job and that you're not going to be home cooking dinner every night oh gosh no <laughs> The senator did eventually marry a couple years later. She and her husband, Layden, have been together now for more than 30 years. Yeah, Hirono's feminist awakening definitely prepared her to find a true life partner in Layden. It also helped her endure the sexist slings and arrows of politics. But once she made it into the Senate, she learned that even staunch feminists can buy into racial stereotypes. In your memoir, Heart of Fire, you cite some of your personal experiences with being racially stereotyped. And <laughs> one, one story in particular really jumped out. So could you tell our listeners the story about this kind of confrontational moment that you had with former Senator Barbara Mikulski when you were hoping to get a seat on the Appropriations Committee. I want to start by saying that I am very fond of Barbara and we are friends. At that time, when I wanted to be on the Appropriations Committee, which she chaired, I was on the floor of the Senate and she started to talk to me about how I should uh, behave a certain way. I needed to be more this or more that. And at that time, I was on the floor of the Senate. I wasn't going to get into a big argument with her. But after that, 
she, as the dean of the women, would uh, occasionally bring all the women bipartisan to her hideout, and we talked. But after one of these events, all the Democratic, many of the Democratic women senators sat in her hideaway to continue our discussions, and, and she started in on how, yes, like I said to Maisie, something like this, that that you know she needs to speak out more, or whatever. And I just looked at her and I said, you know, you don't even know what it took for me to get here. Uh, and I said, basically, that I have not busted my ass to get here <laughs> to uh, be lectured by you. I'm paraphrasing, but it was like that. And, and she apologized immediately. But it showed me that because as an Asian person in the culture that I came from, I was not particularly vocal. I was always very determined, but I just didn't have to be so vocal about it. And I think that there were certain stereotype notions about me as an Asian, as an Asian woman, uh, that came to the fore. But she never went there after that. And in fact, uh, she said, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking when I said those things to you. And she said that after it became very clear that I was not some meek Asian person and <laughs> began to speak out quite strongly against the Trump administration and their mindless cruelties. Well, and I, I also want to note that I especially wanted to ask you about that moment, not because, not to pit, try to pit you two against each other, but it seemed like in the way that you describe it in your memoir, you were really taken aback because here was this woman, she was the longest serving woman in yes. Congress and a trailblazing feminist, and yet she was still perpetuating you know, these these kinds of stereotypes. And I was curious in that moment why it did kind of feel so stunning to you. What I recognized was that she had some notions about me uh, that were, uh, in, in my view, of, of very stereotyping and that I had encountered that um, quite frequently <laughs> among some of my other colleagues and so that I know that they don't think of me that way now. And in fact, I just had a conversation with some of my male colleagues, and I said, had you ever before me ever had to deal or, or experience a, a Japanese, an Asian colleague? And, and these are really progressive men, and, and they had not. So along I come. <laughs> and so, Why did you ask them that question? Because I was curious to know if they, uh, we, we were talking about stereotypes and the sexual stereotyping that most women have to deal with in our country. And when you're an Asian woman, yeah, there's that element of it. And the sexualizing of uh, Asian women, I think that certainly manifested itself in, in a tragic way with the Atlanta shootings. So... I just asked them, by the way, have you guys ever before me had any experience with a, a, a Japanese colleague? Well, of course not, because I'm the first Asian woman to ever get elected to the Senate. <laughs> you know, I've always said that we should not judge a book by its cover because I have always been, there have been many times when I was judged by my cover and I've been relatively quiet in the way I get things done, but very determined. And that in an arena where being vocal and aggressive and confrontational is rewarded. That is the sort of the stereotypical male model of leadership. And I know for a fact that there are a lot of women who, who aren't that way, who are very, very uh, effective. So I, I hope that we also begin to change the 
notions about what makes uh, a leader a leader. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're rewinding to Hirono's start in politics and why some of her male colleagues in the Hawaii legislature nicknamed her the Ice Queen. Stick around. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back with Senator Maisie Hirono. Well, so as a Japanese-American growing up in Hawaii, as you write about in the memoir, you know, you you were not a racial minority. And I'm curious how you think that experience impacted the arc of your political career versus had you grown up on the mainland where you would have been a minority. Well, in Hawaii, there is no racial group that is in the majority. That has a lot to do with wh- why we get along. Oh, there is racism in Hawaii, but generally, if they they kind of keep it to themselves because we you know the Aloha spirit and 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 uh, the, those are things that we aspire to. I think on the mainland there was a, a lot more overt discrimination against the other, and so I'm really glad to have been. Uh, in a place like Hawaii where we really support other races, we eat each other's foods. There's a, you know, the metaphor is the plate lunch, which uh, everybody in Hawaii knows what a plate lunch is, but it consists of this from one racial group. I mean, you can have chow fun or something. You can have kalbi from the Korean culture. You can have rice and, and, you know, all of that all mixed together in a mixed plate. That is Hawaii. It's a mixed plate plate lunch. (laughs) Senator Hirono's sense of community growing up in Hawaii helped shape her political ambitions. When she first got to college, she thought she'd become a therapist or a social worker. But working at a summer camp for low-income Native Hawaiian kids completely changed her perspective. The issues that kids and their families were facing didn't have simple fixes. They were systemic. There was also the Vietnam War. Throughout high school and into early college, Hirono had actually supported it. But the anti-war movement and the atrocities happening on the ground in Vietnam changed her mind. I began to question our country, and and so I I also protested the war. And and I began to think of um, political engagement as a way to make social changes, but never as a candidate myself, though. (laughs) It took me quite a while 
to become a candidate. It took maybe 10 years after I started. I ran my first campaign in 1970, and I did not run for office myself until 1980. And by this time, I had gone off to law school. After spending five years out of school, after I got my BA, I went back to school because I decided if I'm going to stay in the political arena, I needed more credentials. A lot of women think that way, that we usually have to bring a lot more to the table in order to be deemed uh, uh, <laughs> credible, I suppose. And, and the good thing is that w- women these days don't feel that way, and that is a good thing. So off I went to school, and and I did not run for office myself uh, until I had my law degree. Yeah, we do want to hear more about your time in law school at Georgetown, because the biggest challenge that you cite from that time was coming from this (laughs) non-confrontational atmosphere of Hawaii, and you sort of collide with this much different culture of speaking and engaging at Georgetown. So so how was it different and how did you grapple with that difference? Well, I always knew that uh, there were uh, a lot of people who were so much more vocal than I was. And, and so, of course, uh, law school, that's writ large. A lot of competitiveness and uh, vocalizing and all of that. And so I, that that is definitely not a comfortable thing for me. So I spent a lot of my time hoping never to be called on. But one group that I did, uh, I gave a lot to, was the program that I was in. They had a program that was a semester program that worked on actual uh, real-life situations. And there, I, I really put a lot of myself into it because it was real. I wasn't just sitting around intellectualizing or whatever on cases and all that. The, these were actual things I worked on. And so I was very good at it, and they professor who headed that clinical program said that uh, Maisie would have had the highest grade, but she just refused to participate very much in the <laughs> seminar portion. And so he gave me a B plus. He said I would have given her an A, but for that, you know, part. But by the way, Georgetown has uh, honored me with the uh, recognitions at the alumni events and all that. And one of my classmates who is a big uh, Georgetown supporter He looked at me, he said, Maisie, as they were giving me this award, and he said, you know, we thought that uh, our classmates, generally males, we thought they would follow in their father's footsteps in Congress, and he said, it turned out to be you. And I said, (laughs) still waters run deep. (laughs) Do not judge, basically do not judge a book by its covers. But a lot of women, and certainly an Asian person like me, we've encountered low expectations often. (laughs) That was definitely the case in 1980 when Senator Hirono won a seat in the Hawaii State House. She was one of just 10 women in the legislature. Were you prepared for the sexism you encountered there? Because, I mean, you had to deal with people calling you the ice queen. Oh, I didn't mind that, actually, being called the ice cream. That that made me laugh. This is something that a lot of women experience, and how do you deal with it? And also, I realized that just because I had a law degree, it didn't mean that they were all going to listen to me. So I learned to be very strategic in how I went about things. But I had a, a reputation in the state legislature as being a very tough uh 
legislator, and I, I was very effective. <laughs> I, I may still hold the record for getting more of my bills enacted into law. At the time that I ran for lieutenant governor and governor, that was the case. So uh, I um, I was very good at what I did without playing what you call the political game of just trading, horse trading and all that. I, I sought to convince people to uh, my way of thinking by knowing my subject more probably than the my colleagues and persuading them that they should come along with me. And a lot of times they did. Yeah, you could say that Senator Hirono was pretty good at what she did. During her time as a state representative, she got more than 120 bills enacted into law. Her success rate depended on forming alliances, especially with the other women in the House, much to their male colleague's chagrin. Women are are very strategic in how we get things done. And so uh, that means that, that we're really smart about how we can get things done and realizing that the male ego can be a very fragile thing. Ha! <laughs> 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 it makes me laugh. <laughs> and this is one of the reasons that I write in the book that when I first was elected to the uh, state legislature, and we wanted to push through a lot of bills that we knew that women and the families and in our state wanted, but the guys wouldn't really vote for it. And we, I, I said, we're going to start a women's caucus. And, and, and they were, they said, oh, why do you want to do that? Don't you want to work with us? Why do you want to separate yourself? And, you know, we, we said, well, okay. But as our bills continue to not get passed, I said, we're going to start the, the bipartisan women's caucus. And we did. With their powers combined, that caucus expanded the rights of women and children. They amended Hawaii's rape law and helped create a fund for survivors. They increased tax credits for child care. They also boosted job security for employees who took family leave. For the next 20 years, Senator Hirono plowed ahead in Hawaii politics. She went from state rep to lieutenant governor. She lost a race for the first time when she ran for governor— But pretty soon, she set her sights on Washington, specifically the seat in the U.S. House of Representatives formerly held by trailblazing rep Patsy Mink. In 2006, you ran for and won the late Patsy Mink's congressional seat. She was the first woman of color elected to Congress and is best known for spearheading Title IX. She is a total unladylike icon. (laughs) And and one of my personal favorite anecdotes about her is from 1970 when uh, apparently a Democratic colleague of hers insisted that women— could not be president on account of the raging storms of Mm, monthly mm -hmm. hormonal imbalances. And (laughs) she went on the record basically calling this person out and pointing out what nonsense that was. Um, And I just love to see it because it was also happening in a time when, like, I think it was probably a pretty radical statement for her to, uh, to make. So... I just had to ask, what what kind of a role model was Patsy Mink for you in your political career? She was a very strong person who actually had a, a, a more supportive reputation nationally than she did in Hawaii because she was very vocal, very com- confrontational. That was not necessarily rewarded in a woman in Hawaii, I can tell you that. Patsy was a—I I find her to— 
be such an inspiring person because she was so far ahead of her time. When Senator Hirono became the first Asian-American woman elected to the U.S. Senate in 2012, she said, I know I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. I stand on Patsy's shoulders. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Senator Hirono tells the men of America to shut up and step up. Don't go anywhere. I was on the floor of the of the Senate not too long ago. I was talking with Dick Durbin, and I had a we were coming up in the Judiciary Committee on a bill that I wanted. To, it was my bill, and we were going to mark it up in committee. And he said that uh, the, the Republicans are going to have all kinds of of uh, amendments, and what do I want to? do with them. And I said, you know, under normal circumstances, we would try and work it out. And But I said, these are not normal circumstances, so fuck them. (laughs) (laughs) And Dick Durbin said, I hate it when you use technical terms that I have to look up. (laughs) (laughs) We're back with Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono. And yes, she just dropped an F-bomb on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty soon after the 2016 election, Hirono earned a reputation as one of the Senate's most outspoken critics of President Trump and his Republican cronies. Even stage four kidney cancer couldn't hold her back. In 2017, while she was still recovering from intensive cancer treatment, Hirono made sure she was back in Washington to save the Affordable Care Act, which she had helped to draft, and lambast her Republican colleagues for their failed attempt to kill it. In Heart of Fire, you write about how a lot of your career instincts towards politeness and civility sort of just <laughs> fell away. And yes. <laughs> at one point you write, in doing so, I have had to shed all the expectations <laughs> others may have placed on me as an immigrant, a woman, and an Asian American. Was that a conscious sort of metamorphosis? Well, no, because I've always considered myself to be a very determined person. And even during in my time in the legislature and otherwise, I, I would say things that would take people aback. And so there you have it. But it wasn't the kind of uh, vocalization that I uh, came to the fore with Trump because, one, he's the biggest bully of them all. And I really dislike bullies. And I recognize that, you know, you, you have to stand up to them. I said, uh, Trump is a misogynist and a metasexual predator. He's a liar, and he should resign. That was in 2017, relatively shortly after he got elected, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was uh, that was a breakthrough to show that. And, and I realized how important it was for someone like me to use the, the uh, avenue that I had to speak up and speak out. And so I just speak plainly. I call him a liar. I don't say he stretches the truth. Mm. You know, I tell Bill Barr, you should resign. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, I swear. But <laughs> kind of often. <laughs> I say, you know, I've said to people, look, with uh, all the horrible things uh, from this Trump administration and the constant assaults on the body politic, if you don't, if you're not moved to swear once in a while, you're not paying attention. <laughs> That's for sure. Amen. <laughs> 
One of the moments where Senator Hirono spoke off the cuff and people listened was during Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation hearings in September of 2018. Hirono was one of the 22 members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That put her front and center for the proceedings. Then as soon as Christine Blasey Ford's sexual assault allegations became public, the press immediately focused on Hirono and her three female colleagues on the Judiciary Committee. All of a sudden, it was, oh, what do the women think about all of this? How will the women respond to it? The senator was having none of it. Guess who's perpetuating all of these kinds of actions? It's the men in this country. And I just want to say to the men in this country, just shut up and step up. Do the right thing. That hot take went viral. Senator Maisie Hirono was asked today about the sex assault allegation against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. That comment of hers has had the Internet in a frenzy. And let me say this to Maisie Hirono, the Hawaiian senator, who Democrat, who told all the men of America to shut up. Tonight, I say to her, shut up, Senator. Shut up. Lindsey Graham even called back to it during one of the Kavanaugh hearings. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I know I'm a uh, single white male from South Carolina, and I've told I should shut up, but I will not shut up if that's okay. Senator, that sentiment of shut up and step up so perfectly encapsulated this ongoing problem of, especially when we talk about Me Too and issues around sexual harassment, assault, Mm -hmm. and sexual violence, it is considered a quote-unquote women's issue and women are the ones who get asked about it. And, <sighs> Senator, you can probably hear the frustration in my voice. Oh, yes. We women should get be sick and tired of having to explain stuff that men should take responsibility for. For one thing, I'd, I'd, like men to, I'd like men to stop behaving this way, and then if they do, they should clean up after themselves. But they don't, and so the, these are, you know, I'd like to see some changes there, and I'd like guys to decide that they're not going to act this way. But um, it's one of the reasons that with the Me Too movement that I decided that there's such a there was going to be a backlash on the Me Too movement, and the uh, it's 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 hard enough for women to come forward and talk about their terrible experiences. But all of that was gonna there's going to be a big pushback. And I remember when Trump said, "Oh yeah, he fears for his sons now," and <laughs> I just thought, "Oh my," well, I think I swore, but. I said, my gosh, you know, as though, as though women sit around cooking up allegations against men. We have other things to do. But that was what uh, was in his statement, that he's so scared now for his sons, who probably, if they take after dad, God knows what they're up to. So we need to be, continue to, um, <laughs> continue to have to contend with this kind of behavior. Uh, and we just need to call it out. How does having a Democrat in the White House affect your approach to speaking out and speaking truth to power and holding that power accountable? I'm so glad that we now have a president and vice president who uh, are caring human beings. 
at a time when that AAPI community feels under siege and very vulnerable, that President Biden has spoken out in no uncertain terms. Uh, so it is a relief that we have a president who has empathy, who cares, who speaks to that. I will speak up against, uh, you know, in disagreement with the things that Joe Biden does too. And a group of us uh, met with him yesterday and he said, if you disagree with me, you should, um, you know, let me know and I, and I will take him up on it. And in fact, one of the areas that's come up is uh, having to do with refugees. And he is not going to allow the, the number of refu refugees that, that he had originally said he would allow into our country. And refugees are a different category than asylum seekers. They've already been vetted. And there are groups in our country who are prepared to help the refugees come into our country and, and to be able to live and work in our country. But he is going back to a very low number. He's going back to Trump's numbers. And so uh, he will hear from me and from others that uh, uh, he needs to do better. President Biden apparently did hear that criticism. Soon after we interviewed Senator Hirono, the White House announced it would raise the number of refugees allowed into the country. But as of this recording, they haven't confirmed by how much. Well, Senator, those are all of the questions that we had written down for you. Um, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would want to <laughs> emphasize for unladylike listeners? I think it is really important for women to speak out and to, they don't have to be... Uh, they don't even have to speak in complete sentences because sometimes I think I don't speak in complete sentences. <laughs> but the feeling is there and the message is definitely there. And it is important at a time like this, to, especially for the AAPI community, to speak out. And they are. I've never seen so many AAPI people on TV and on news in my entire life than now. And I, th I think it's especially important for women to not be afraid of their what you would call the productive rage, mm -hmm. and uh, also not to fear being uh, disliked. Mm. I have a whole cadre of Fox News people who totally dislike me. <laughs> Doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Senator, we do ask all of our guests this one final question. Mm -hmm. What is the most unladylike thing about you? <laughs> Well, considering that I don't even care about being ladylike or not, but I don't go out of my way to rage at people or anything like that. Probably that um, that I swear to people to their faces. <laughs> and we appreciate that you do. <laughs> yes. yes. It's, I would say especially to people who deserve it. <laughs> I mean, I don't randomly swear at people. It's quite focused. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's focused. Yep. It's directed. Yep. <laughs> it's intentional. <laughs> Senator, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us this evening. Thank you. It's been fun. <laughs> yeah, this has been so much fun. You can follow Senator Maisie Hirono on Twitter at Maisie Hirono or just watch her working her magic on the floor of the Senate. Her memoir, Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story, is also out now and available at your local bookstore. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unladylike Media. 
You can also support Kristen and me by joining our Patreon. You'll get weekly ad-free bonus episodes full of history and pop culture and politics and general nerdery. Plus, you'll get our undying love all by going to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Nora Ritchie is the senior producer of Unladylike. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Caroline Irvin. And Kristen Conger of Unladylike Media. Next week... We do much better in life and even perform better at work as parents, whatever, if we gave ourselves a little bit more self-compassion. Um, you know, the simple act of kind of being mindful of where you're at, recognizing that you are a human and part of your common humanity is to not be perfect all the time and to kind of give yourself a little bit of kindness and grace. You know, the same kindness you would get from your best friend when you call them and tell them you're burning out. They wouldn't be like, well, push yourself harder. You know, they'd be like, take a break, dude. I'm like, let's, you know, go for that manicure or whatever. Um, You need to kind of do that for yourself. We are bringing y'all our second installment of Ask Unladylike. This time, we invited on special guest Dr. Lori Santos, host of the podcast Happiness Lab, to chat about toxic positivity and how to emerge from the pandemic with our happiness intact. You don't want to miss this episode. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. <laughs> I know I'm a single white man from South Kakalaki, and I have been told I should shut up. I will not shut up. Stitcher. <laughs>